Hey all you spooky listeners, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Morbid Curiosity, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Nicole. I'll be taking you through some of the most heinous, shocking, and morbid crimes, including, of course, the paranormal. Listener discretion is advised. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram at morbid, period, curiosity, period, TC podcast, where you can find photos related to our cases, including crime scene photos on occasion, of course, with the exception of postmortem photos. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Oh, my gosh. I feel like I haven't, like, made a podcast episode in, like, forever. Um, So, unfortunately, I have some bad news, which is um, until I get a new PC, like a desktop, I am going to have to record this off of my iPad and my iPhone. So, if the quality is a little bit less and it kind of sounds a little sucky, that is why um, I don't know what happened during the move, but, like, my desktop is, like, probably, bleh, I would say over, over 10, 12 years old. Um, you know, it was 2013, 2014 when I was in high school, got it for a gaming PC, and I guess during the move, the hard drive got jumbled around in the, um, box, and it just stopped working, so... I gotta, I gotta do what I can, okay? So, don't hate me if this sounds like crap for the next how many ever couple of weeks, because the PCs nowadays are not, you know, $500 anymore like that one was. They're like $800 plus, so do what I can, do what I can. Anyway, um, I'm glad to be back. I hope you guys have been well. The move went well. We left the house. Um... I'm putting everything together as fast as I can and trying not to leave you guys behind because I know you're waiting on new episodes and I'm here to provide. So, the episode we're going to do today is going to be our 32nd episode, so we're almost to 40. Look at that. We'll try to do something special for our 40th episode. Um, We're going to do the disappearance of Mara Murray. Um, if a lot of you don't know this case, it's kind of like, well, it's almost 20 years old. Um, it's from 2004, so we're just gonna get on into it, and I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Maura Murray was born May 4th, 1982, in Hanson, Massachusetts, She was the fourth child of Frederick, a.k.a. Fred, and that's how we will call him, and Lori Murray. She had an older brother named Fred also, two older sisters, Kathleen and Julie, and a half-younger brother named Kurt. Now, Maura was raised in an Irish Catholic household, and when she was around six years of age, her and her siblings went through the unfortunate divorce of her parents, which then led Maura to live primarily with her mother. So she lived with her for a while. Now she went on to graduate from Whitman Hanson Regional High School where she was a star athlete on the school's track team. Then she was accepted into the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York, where she studied chemical engineering for three semesters. Now after her freshman year, she decided to switch things up 
drastically. And she transferred to University of Massachusetts Amherst to study nursing. So, what you first her time there was pretty normal. Uh, she had no problems, good at school, good at what she does, you know, typical for her. Now, three months before she disappeared, she was arrested for using a stolen credit card number, which they kind of gave her a deal on. They were like, you know what? We will totally dismiss all of the charges against you as long as you have good behavior for the next three months. Like, prove to us that this isn't the normal for you. So, that's what she was in the midst of doing, right? Proven good behavior. Now, on the evening of February 5th, 2004, while she was on duty at the campus security job, she had an emotional phone call with her sister Kathleen. Now, during this phone call, they discussed Kathleen's relationship problems with her fiance and her unfortunate alcohol addiction issues. Around 10.30, while she was still on her shift, Maura reportedly broke down in tears, and when her supervisor arrived at her desk, she was just, in quote, just completely zoned out, no reaction at all, she was unresponsive, end quote. Now, of course, the supervisor escorted her back to her dorm room around 1.20 in the morning. Now, she tried to figure out what was wrong with Maura. She asked her, and all she could say was, my sister. Couldn't say anything else. She was still sobbing. So, now, the contents of this call remain unknown, like with Kathleen, up until October 2017, when Kathleen publicly explained the conversation. Kathleen was a recovering alcoholic, had been discharged from a rehab clinic that evening, and on the way home, her fiancé took her to a liquor store, which caused her to have an emotional breakdown. Because, like, why why would you do that, right? <laughs> you have a recovering alcoholic, and you're going to go by the liquor store. <clears throat> anyway, she wanted to call Maura and talk to her about it, because she was, you know, emotionally wrecked right there. So, take note, this was four days before Mora would vanish. On Saturday, February 7, 2004, Mora's dad, Fred, arrived in Amherst. Now, he told investigators he and Mora went car shopping that afternoon and later went to dinner with a friend of his daughter. Now, she dropped him back off at the motel room that he was staying in and borrowed his Toyota Corolla. She then went to attend a party at the dorm. She arrived at 10.30 p.m. The following morning at 2.30 a.m. on Sunday, February 8th, she left the party. Now, at 3.30 a.m. en route to her dad's motel, she struck a guardrail on Route 9 in Hadley. This caused nearly around, right, 10K worth of damages to his car, equivalent to... Fourteen thousand dollars in 2021 growing since then right now fred of course was upset upset and distraught right luckily she was okay so like he wasn't completely upset because you know his daughter was alive and fine on the other hand his car was pretty much totaled <laughs> so he called the insurance company. Turns out they'll cover the cost as long as she went to go pick up proper paperwork from the registry of motor vehicles. 
Now, of course, the responding officer wrote an accident report, like one does, but there is no documentation of field sobriety tests being conducted on Mara. So, whether she was intoxicated from the party or not, we have no idea. Now, she was driven to her dad's motel, stayed in his room the rest of the morning, and at 4.49 a.m., there was a cell phone call placed to her boyfriend from Fred's phone, right? Now, the participants and content of the phone call are still unknown to this day. We have no idea what the call was about, if it was just her boyfriend named Bill. Like, we have no idea. No idea at all. So, he ended up renting a car, um, dropped her off at the university, departed for Connecticut, and that was around 11.30 at night. He called her to remind her, hey, don't forget the accident form so I can get this covered by insurance, etc., etc. And they agreed to talk Monday night to discuss the forms and fill out an insurance claim via telephone. So, they were getting ready to handle the mess, right? Now, after midnight on Monday, February 9th, she used her PC to search MapQuest for directions to Berkshire and Burlington, Vermont. Now... The first reported contact she had with anyone that day was around 1 p.m., and that's when she emailed her boyfriend, Bill, who was also a U.S. Army lieutenant in Oklahoma, just the FYI. She said, quote, I love you more, stud. I got your messages, but honestly, I didn't feel like talking too much of anyone. I promised to call today, though. Love you, Mora." end quote. Now... She also made a phone call inquiring about renting a condo at the same Bartlett New Hampshire Condo Association, and that's where her family used to go vacation at, so she was pretty aware of that area. Now, phone records indicate the call lasted just a mere three minutes with the condo owner, right? She did not reserve a condo, didn't do anything over the phone. She just inquired about it. Now, at 1.13 p.m., she called a fellow nursing student for reasons we have no idea. Um, also, that call is unknown. Um, the contents of the call are unknown. Now, on the afternoon of Monday, February 9th, around 1.24 p.m., she emailed a work supervisor of the nursing school facility that she would be out of town. Uh, there was a family death. I can't make it in. I, I'm not going to be here kind of thing. But according to her family, there was no deaths. Um, they don't know why she would say that there was a family death when there wasn't. No idea. A little suspicious, but, you know, maybe she just didn't want to do the whole call out sick thing. We don't know. Nobody knows. Now, she also said, you know what? I got a family death going on. I'll call you when I get back. She told them that she would get in contact with them whenever she comes back from handling all that. At 2.05 p.m., she called a number which provides recorded info about booking hotels in Stowe, Vermont. Um, that call lasted approximately five minutes and also... Yet again, she did not reserve anything. She just called to inquire about it, didn't reserve anything. She just wanted info. At 2.18, she called her boyfriend, Bill, left a voice message promising him, you know what, we're going to talk later about this, et cetera, et cetera. That was ended after one minute. Okay. Now, it's unclear 
what her planned destination was meant to be because she told no one anything. No plans. You know, like, she was keeping it all to herself. Now, in her car, Mara packed clothing, toiletries, college textbooks, birth control pills, and when they searched her room later, like, after she had disappeared already, campus police discovered most of her belongings already packed in boxes. Uh, everything was removed from the walls. Everything was packed. Now, it's not clear whether she packed them that same day, but police at the time said she had packed them between Sunday night and mor Monday morning. And also on top of the boxes was a printed email to her boyfriend, Bill, indicating trouble in their relationship. And around 3.30 p.m., she drove off campus in her black 1996 Saturn sedan. Classes at the university, just tidbit of info, had been canceled that day due to a snowstorm. So the weather for her to be driving in was pretty hectic. So, you know, it, it was going to be a very cold, crazy weather day, right? Now, at 3.30, or excuse me, 3.40 p.m., she went to a nearby ATM, withdrew pretty much all of her money. It was $280. Um, footage shown at the ATM, she was by herself. She did it by herself. Like, now, I, this is, like, just me speculating here. If anybody was with her, if they were in the car, like, they wouldn't have known anyway. They can't see that. You know what I mean? So, just keep that in mind. Um, whether that's a truth or not, that's just speculation, like I said. But, um, after the ATM withdrawal, she went to a liquor store. Now, she purchased about $40 worth of beverages, alcohol, right? Including Bailey's Irish Cream, Kahlua, vodka, and a box of Franzia wine. Um, now, security footage, again, shows that she was alone. Then at some point in the day, she also picked up the accident report forms from the Registry of Motor Vehicles. So, she actually did go and get those. Now, whether she was going to do anything with those, we don't really know. Because, you know, she left Amherst between 4 to 5. Uh, presumably on Interstate 91 North. She called to check her voicemail at 437, which was the last recorded use of her cell phone. To date, there is no indication she had informed anyone of her destination, her plans, or any evidence that she had even chosen a destination. She was just kind of flying by the seat of her pants, you know, as far as we're concerned. She probably had a plan, we just don't know it. Alright guys, we're going to take a short momentary break. If you haven't already, go use the bathroom, get you a drink, get you some snacks, and then when you come back, we're going to finish this episode. Now, sometime after 7 p.m., a Woodsville, New Hampshire resident heard a really loud thump outside of her house. When she looked through the window, she saw a car against a snowbank along Route 112. Now, the car was pointed west on the eastbound side of the road, so note that. She called the Grafton County Sheriff's Department at 727, 
why it took 27 to 30 minutes to call, I mean, don't really know. Um, but just, you know, note the periods of time here, okay? So, according to the 911 log, the woman claimed to have seen a man smoking a cigarette inside the car. However, she later stated that, you know, it wasn't a man or a person smoking a cigarette, but rather it appeared to be like a red glowing light inside the car, potentially from a cell phone. They never figured it out. Again, never figured it out. A passing school bus driver who lived nearby stopped at the scene. Like, they saw the car, they saw a young woman walking around the vehicle, and when he asked the young woman, you okay? Like, let me call the police for you. She refused. She was like, oh, I've already tried, uh, excuse me, I already called AAA. Like, it's already handled. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. You know, he noticed also she wasn't visibly injured. No bleeding, no nothing. She was just cold. She was shivering. Remember, it's snowy. It was a horrible snowstorm coming in, right? So, on the police report, though, it says that she begged and pleaded him not to call 911. Why she was so desperate to not have them called, we don't know. Although, it is kind of odd, you know? Now, knowing there was no cell service in the area, the bus driver continued home, called police, and his call was at 743. Notice, it's about a 20-minute you know, add-on to the woman's phone call. So, he only left her alone for 20 minutes, right? You think she would still be there. Unfortunately, she was not. Um, he was unable to see Moore's car while he made the call, but did notice several cars pass on the road before the police arrived. So, he was in viewing distance of the accident, right? Another local resident driving home from work claimed she passed by the scene around 7.37 and saw a police SUV parked face-to-face -face with her car. Now, she pulled over briefly but didn't see anyone around the car. Nobody inside, no one around the cars, like, just no one, right? So, she was like, okay, that's kind of odd, but I guess I'm not needed, and she decided to continue home. Now... That's kind of odd only because the witness's statement contradicts the official police log, which has Haverhill police arriving nine minutes later. Like, nobody was supposed to be there at that time. Like, and if they were, if someone did go, they didn't record it. It wasn't logged on the police reports. Like, it was just kind of one of those weird did that really happen moments kind of for police right so according to the official police log at 746 a Hill police officer arrived at the scene but the woman driver had all but disappeared so she absolutely just vanished now no one was inside or around the car not in the woods there's nobody the car had impacted the tree on the driver's side of the vehicle, severely damaging the left headlight and pushing the car's radiator into the fan. So, it was rendered inoperable. She, she couldn't have drove it away. So, she must have left on foot. 
Now, the car's windshield was cracked on the driver's side, and both airbags had been deployed. Now, the car was locked, though, so... Interesting, right? If she left on foot, the car was locked. You think the driver's side car would be unlocked if she left? I don't know. Kind of weird. Now, for the first officer on the scene found the damaged car. No driver. It was locked. Airbags deployed, like I said. And he wrote up the report and said, quote, Evidence at the scene indicated the vehicle had been eastbound and had gone off the roadway, struck some trees, spun around, and come to rest facing the wrong way in the eastbound lane, end quote. He also continued, quote, In plain sight behind the driver's seat of the vehicle, I could see a box of Frenza wine. I could also see red liquid on the driver's side door and the ceiling of the car. Now, in addition, the cop discovered a Coke bottle that had contained a red liquid with a strong alcoholic odor. That was also in his report. And there was also printed MapQuest directions to Burlington, Vermont. Now, in addition, excuse me, in addition to his findings, he also found a AAA card issued to her, blank accident report forms, gloves, compact discs, makeup, diamond jewelry, and of course, you know, the printed out directions, and her favorite animal, like stuffed animal, and a book called Not Without Peril, which is about mount climbing in White Mountains. Now, some obvious missing items were her debit card, credit card, cell phone, backpack, None of which have been located or used since her disappearance, just FYI. The police later reported some of the bottles of purchased liquor were also missing. Um, there were no obvious signs of foul play. There was no footprints in the snow that led into the nearby woods. So when the officer asked Atwood, the last known person to speak with Mara, which was, um, I believe, the uh, bus driver, um, you know... They were like, hey, help us, you know, search, right? Eventually, a state trooper showed up, followed by firefighters, EMS, you know, they all combed the area west of the scene, and it's believed that no one went east during the initial search. Why they never went in multiple directions? I, I, I don't, we don't know. We don't know. Um, the responding officer and the bus driver around the area, you know, they like, drove around, drove around the area searching for her. Maybe she went down one of the roads. You never know. Um, just before 8 p.m., EMS and a fire truck arrived to clear the scene. By 8.49, the car had been towed to the local garage. At 9.30, the responding officer left and a rag believed to have been part of her emergency roadside kit was discovered stuffed into her muffler pipe. Odd, yes. Authorities would refer to Mara as simply missing. At 12 p.m. the next day, almost 24 hours after the last confirmed sighting of her. Another thing, this irritates me as well. Not only did they lack direction during searching for her, which could have been like vital, you never know. Um, they did not inform her dad, Fred, until the next day. Like 24 hours later, oh, by the way, your daughter got in a crash and is missing. Um, so just to let you know, have a great day, that kind of thing. Now, Fred 
criticized police about how they handled her case for years, years and years, till this day he criticizes the police and how they handled her. Now, he said, quote, I knew she was headed east. She was headed to Bartlett. She was up there as an infant. I remember changing her diapers in a tent up there for Christ's sakes, end quote. Now, while her phone records would indicate that she was considering renting a room in Bartlett, per the MapQuest directions, right, um, in her car, they were printed for Burlington. So, you know, different areas, different places, police were like, yeah, she called about it, but the directions in her car was to Burlington. So, that's where we think she's going. Now, since she had told no one of her plans, left without making a confirmed reservation, it remains unclear where she was actually going, you know, what she had planned. We don't know. Nobody knows. Now, police also believe that she may have been suicidal and even put out a press release just two days after she went missing saying, eh, she was possibly suicidal. This could just be like a thing that she did, you know, to get away from everyone and com commit suicide. Like, they were already starting that theory, right? Now, her father strongly denied that suggestion. He said, quote, she was in good spirits and had no worries or reason to run away from her life, end quote. Now, however that may be, it cannot be ignored that she was dealing with numerous problems prior to her disappearance. Um, I am not indicating in any way, shape, or form that she went to, you know, to suicidal thoughts. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is... A lot of times family are like, oh my God, she had a great life. Like, she would never do that. But underlying issues with the person, you know, sometimes that's not right. But I'm not saying that in this case. I'm just saying it can't be ignored because she did have, excuse me, issues. Now, including her legal issues with the card fraud, right? Because she had to have the three months behave, the good behavior, her worries over her sister's alcoholism and relationship, and her crash in her car's dad mere hours before getting into another car accident. Now, though many of her loved ones believe that she had simply intended to just get away, um, just for the, from the drama, all of that, just for a few days. She was just trying to run away for a few days. There were some signs that she intended to disappear permanently. Um, most notably, a search of her dorm, like I said earlier, all of her stuff was packed, and like, the email detailed problems in the relationship that she had with Bill, like, there was a good bit of information that was like, she was just trying to start a new life for herself. She was trying to go away somewhere, okay? Now, February 10th, a bolo was issued for her, um of course to no avail but they did issue a bolo for her. now while she had left some belongings in her car a few key items were missing um which was like her cell phone and her backpack like I mentioned earlier her phone never was used again never pinged no records no nothing it just you know 
just never was used. Now, any bank account associated with her also remained dormant. Never touched her bank account ever again. And ever since Mora disappeared in 2004, only alleged sightings, dead ends, and speculative theories have emerged and nothing else. Now, journalist Joe McGee, who wrote for Quincy, Massachusetts, Patriot Ledger, summarized the incident as this, quote, At a hairpin turn, she went off the road. Her car hit a tree, and at that point, a person came along who was driving a bus. It was a neighbor. He asked her if she needed help. She refused. About 10 minutes later, police showed up to the scene, and Mara Murray was gone, end quote. Now, police traced the vehicle to Mara, of course, and initially treated her as a missing person on the belief that she may have just wanted to disappear voluntarily. This speculation was based on her travel preparations that she had that we knew of, printed navigation, you know, that kind of thing, and how she told nothing to her friends and family about her plans and where she was going. The obvious evidence of no foul play she just vanished like she supposedly wanted, right? In 2009, her case was given to the New Hampshire Cold Case Division, and authorities are handling it as a suspicious missing persons case. Now, as far as the alleged sightings go, between 8 and 8.30, a contractor returning home from Franconia, New Hampshire, saw a young person moving quickly on foot eastbound on Route 112, about four to five miles east of where her vehicle was discovered. Now, he noted that the young person was wearing jeans, a dark coat, and a light-colored hood. He did not report it to police immediately. Um, that was another bummer because that fit what she was wearing the time her bolo was issued. And, unfortunately, that was the last sighting ever of Maura Murray. Um, and since he didn't report it to the police immediately, not to blame him, but it kind of killed any kind of lead they would ever, ever, ever get again on Maura. Um, now, unfortunately, he didn't report it immediately because he was confused of dates and... He discovered them three months later in his work notes on his records where he wrote it down. Like, hey, there was this young person and blah, blah, blah. Like, he wrote it down, but he couldn't remember the date, so he didn't report it. So, unfortunately, that was probably the last chance we had at finding her. I mean, even if he did report it immediately, who's to say she wouldn't be immediately gone? You know, I mean, it only took her 10 minutes to disappear from the vehicle, you know, like, I'm not trying to blame him. I know it sounds like I am, but I'm just like, ah, my God, that was the last pretty, pretty good detailed sighting, right, that we would ever have on Mora. Now, of course, over the years, they searched for her numerous times, Snow Avail, from like 2004 all the way up until recently. Um, since they have never found any remains or anything correlating to her, like, possibly being a, a murder victim, they ruled out the serial killer theory a long time ago. They also used police tracking dogs during these searches, which, you know, one time, 
in the beginning. They had hit her scent, and it was going east from the wreck, but unfortunately, the dogs lost the scent. So, all we can say is that she was possibly going east and maybe crossed water or crossed something, like who knows. The dogs lost it, and that was it. Now, at some point, her boyfriend, Bill, came to help search. He had to fly in, of course, you know, because he didn't live in the same area. He was, you know, like I said, a lieutenant in Oklahoma. So, he turned his phone on plane mode. Now, while the dates of this, I have no idea. I searched and searched and searched for this, and I could not find when he received this voice message. But, when he arrived at the location, um, he realized he had a voicemail, right? The call sounded like Mora crying and sobbing. Um, nothing that I know of was said. It was just her crying. Now, they traced the call um, to like a, it was like traced to a calling card, excuse me, uh, which was issued to the American Red Cross. Whether that was ever followed up, I have no idea. But that was received. That was the last thing. Now, that had to have been before she vanished, vanished, I would say, because, like I said earlier, records indicate no phone usage after she disappeared from the wreckage. So, I'm not really sure if this was before that, maybe when she got in the wreck. We don't know. Because remember, the neighbor saw the light in the, in the car. So, could that have been them? We don't know. It's never indicated. So, I apologize. We don't have that information. Now, the FBI also got involved. They had thermal radar, cadaver dogs, tracking dogs, etc., helicopters, everything, to no avail. In late 2005, Fred filed suit against several law enforcement agencies, because remember, he was super displeased about how they were handling her case. Even just, you know, not even telling him, hey, your daughter's missing, you know. Next day, you know, his, his aggravation with them started the very first day. So, of course, this lawsuit was also aggravation because it seems like they weren't telling him what they needed to tell him. Of course, you know, heck, it even goes back to the first day that she went missing. They didn't even tell him till the next day. Like, so he had the suits filed in aim of seeing files on his daughter's case. Now, on November 1st, 2005, a user named Don, excuse me, Tom Davies logged into a message board called Not Without Peril, which was dedicated to the discussion of Mara's disappearance. And he claimed there was a black backpack behind a restroom at Pemigawasset Overlook around 30 miles east of Woodsville on Route 112. Now, if you remember correctly, Mara had owned a black backpack. It was missing from the wreckage, right? Senior Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey um, Sreslin, excuse me, stated that law enforcement was aware of the backpack, but did not disclose whether it had been taken for forensic testing. Like, they won't say anything. Was it taken? We don't know. Like, you should at least, should at least tell someone, right? So, they were aware of it, whether they went and got it or not, went and searched for it or not. They don't, we don't know. They were just aware of it. That's, that's all we know. 
in 2006, 10 retired police officers and detectives um, and the Molly Bish Foundation started working on the case. And Tom Shamshuk, a former police chief and a member of the Licensed Private Detectives Association of Massachusetts, said, quote, It appears that this is something beyond a mere missing persons case. Something ominous could have happened here, end quote. The Arkansas group Let's Bring Them Home offered $75,000 as a reward in 2007 for any information that could solve her disappearance. In October 2006, volunteers led a two-day search within a few miles of where her car was found in the closet of an A-frame home approximately a mile from the crash site. Cadaver dogs allegedly went bonkers, is what they said. Um, possibly identifying the presence of human remains. The house had formerly been the residence of the man implicated by his brother, who had given Fred the rusty knife in 2004. Now, just kind of background info. In 2004, kind of in the early beginning of an investigation, there was this man who gave Fred, the dad, um, a knife, right, a rusty knife, and claimed... Um, you know, my brother killed your daughter. I'm so sorry. Here's the knife, the murder weapon, right? So, later on, though, it came out. The family members kind of made up the claim, which is really, really shoddy, okay? Like, they wanted the reward money. They wanted the $75,000. And um, the brother that they had blamed it on um, had, like, a history of drug use. And whether they actually investigated the knife back then, we have no idea. <laughs> Probably not. But you never know. Uh, they could surprise us every now and then. But they did do a sample from the carpet of the home that the cadaver dogs went crazy on. And it was sent to the New Hampshire State Police, but the results were never released to the public. Again, withholding information. So we don't know what the results were. In July 2008, volunteers led another two-day search through wooded areas of Haverhill. The group consisted of dog teams and licensed private investigators. And you know what's sad, though? Like, most of the time, families have to go through the stress of an investigation, but they have to go through the stress of paying out of pocket for a PI because the police won't do their freaking jobs. That's a pet peeve of mine. But that's so aggravating. Just so aggravating. But most of the time, I mean, they get information for them, which is great. But other times, you know, there's nothing to be found. So, unfortunately, in Maura's case, there's nothing to be found. She has vanished. Just gone. Um, you know, Maura's case was one of many cited... Um, of, like, proponents of a statewide cold case. Like, there's no information new. There's no new information. Nobody knows what happened to her in that 10-minute window. She just disappeared from the world, pretty much, is, is how they're looking at it. Now, her case was subsequently added to the newly established cold case unit later that year, um in 2009 and in 2010 fred publicly criticized the police investigation for tr treating the disappearance as a missing persons case and not a criminal matter 
and called on the FBI to join the investigation. Now, as I said earlier, FBI or not, nobody found anything. She's just gone. Um, Jeffrey, uh, remember Strizzlin, um, said in February 2009 that the investigation was still active, and he said, quote, We don't know if Mara is a victim, but the state is treating it as a potential homicide. It may be a missing persons case, but it is being handled as a criminal investigation, end quote. Now, some updates. And I'll give you what's updated so far, but we don't have anything new. Um, the newest thing we have is, like, 2022. So, I mean, it's kind of new, but not new. You know what I mean? So, 2014, on the 10th anniversary of her disappearance, uh, Strislin stated that, quote, We haven't had any credible sightings of Mora since the night she disappeared. End quote. Talking about the, um, the bus driver. Now, in an article published in the New York Daily News on the 10th anniversary of Maura's disappearance, it was reported that Fred believed she was dead and had been abducted the night of her disappearance. So, he already believes she's deceased and somebody got her. Like, just some dude just happened to be there. Now, February 9th, 2017, a couple of years later, 13th anniversary rolls around, and Strizzlin wrote an email to the Boston Globe stating, quote, It's still an open case with periods of activity, and at times it goes dormant. There are no new updates to share at this time, end quote. A couple of years later, 15th anniversary, February 2019, Fred reiterated his belief that his daughter was deceased, as well as his suspicion about the nearby house that cadaver dogs responded to, stating, quote, that's my daughter, I do believe, end quote. In early April that year, um, excavation was done within the basement of the house, which Fred had previously wanted that house searched immediately after they hid on it, but the previous owners were, like, not willing to cooperate. Also, kind of like, boo on you because like you have a missing person and you won't let them search a house you wouldn't want to know like mm, it's kind of odd but following the sale of the property the new owners were like have at it we totally will cooperate search to your heart's content they did it and after the excavation absolutely nothing other than what appears to be a piece of pottery or old piping was found in early 2021, the tree at the site where Mara was last seen, which had been marked with a blue ribbon as a memorial, was cut down by the property owner. Like, really? Like, wow. Really? Yeah. Shortly thereafter, a request from her family to have a New Hampshire historical marker placed at the site, which had been submitted in late 2020, they said no. They were like, no, we can't do that. Sorry about it. Um, which, again, is really shoddy. Like, can't, can't let the family have nothing. No answers, no tree, no ribbon, no nothing. Sorry about it. That's just horrible to me. But September 14, 2021, New Hampshire State Police announced that bone fragments had been found on Loon Mountain in Lincoln, New Hampshire, approximately 25 east of the site of the crash. Now, if you remember correctly, uh, the dog scent caught her going east 
um, in the woods. So, now, Mara had been to the mountain before, had knowledge of the area, according to her sister. The bone fragments were described as pretty small, so it wasn't like it was like a whole femur or like a whole, like, thing. It was just tiny, tiny fragments. Now, it was expected to take at least two months to determine if they were actually more or not. And in November, um, it was announced that the remains were not hers. Whose they were, we have, again, no idea. Now, January 2022, which was last year, FBI issued a national alert in her case and created a violent criminal apprehension profile, allowing multiple law enforcement agencies to share info regarding her case. In July 2022, law enforcement in New Hampshire initiated a search in the towns of Landiff and Easton. Unfortunately, no evidence, no new updates, no nothing has been reported since. Now, let's get into some theories that have came across um, the internet or, you know, from sleuths that have been all over the case. Let, let's just kind of review here, okay? So, one of the earliest police theories was her being suicidal. Um, you know, her family, like I said earlier, insisted that would never happen. She never would have done that, period. Now, personal feelings aside, some of the items that she packed in her car, such as birth control pills, tooth whitener, college textbooks, etc., have led many to believe that she was not intending to die that day, because, like, why would you bring stuff if you're just going to end your life anyway? You know what I mean? Like, that just doesn't make sense. Normally, when people are suicidal, they either go through the stage of just ending it, or they go through giving things away. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, anyway, that part didn't make sense. Like, why bother, right? Another theory was that she had simply panicked after crashing the car just hours after damaging her dad's vehicle. So, not only, you know, she crashed one, she crashed two cars in the same day, and she escaped the area to avoid getting in trouble, because remember, she was kind of being watched after the credit card info had been used. So, there were like three months good behavior, she messed that up twice in one day, it's kind of like, ugh, you know what I mean? So, considering the amount of alcohol found at the scene and the Coke bottle that was likely filled with alcohol, authorities believed that she had been drinking and didn't want to risk jeopardizing her record um, for good behavior, like I said, after the credit card fraud. So, maybe she ran away because of that. Now, the nearby woods might have hypothetically been a good place to hide. Now, if the weather had been warm. Now, you gotta remember, it was rather cold outside. Like, there was snow, it was cold, you know it's it you wouldn't hide in the cold woods right there were also no footprints found in the snow leading into the woods meaning that she would have had to escape on the road likely moving east of the accident scene since that area was not inspected during the first search because <laughs> they uh messed up right so she left on the road she didn't go through the woods she just left on the road um i think i said earlier i think i messed up and said woods i apologize um no, completely, I, I just, yeah, I completely thought, for some reason, 
the uh, scent dogs, the tracking dogs, had gone through the woods, but I was mistaken. Uh, yeah. So, ignore that. I apologize. Um, now, interestingly enough, though, a contractor who had been passing by on Route 112 that night later reported seeing a young person moving eastbound on the road and around 8 to 8.30. Um, however, the contractor didn't report the alleged site till three months later. Like I said earlier, he just wasn't sure about the date. Didn't, I couldn't remember the date. Sorry about it. Not reported. Now, assuming that she did not, uh, commit suicide and she did not succumb to the elements while in hiding, right? Where would she have gone? Um, some have speculated that she started a whole new life for herself, perhaps in Canada to escape her legal issues and drama, that was unfolding in her personal life while authorities have acknowledged the possibility that she is still out there somewhere living her life up doing whatever they think it's extremely unlikely um you know though some have stuck to the suicide or accidental excuse me accidental death theories others think she was abducted her dad fred firmly believes that somebody took her like taken by a local dirt bag is what her dad said however Many residents of Haverhill have all but scoffed at the idea that it was a local person who did it. Like, a local person would never, you know, that kind of thing. They suggest that she was simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. Sorry about it. It was a random person that kidnapped her. Not local from here. By no means, right? That's what the locals say. Now, in the years since she went missing, amateur sleuths have explored all sorts of ideas and beyond and more for instance, her boyfriend, Bill, um, which when I first read this while I was doing research on it the other day, I was like, ooh, that's kind of a big deal, right? But uh, apparently to police it wasn't. Um, but Bill has since been accused of sexual misconduct against other women, leading some to question whether he played a role in what happened to her. However, she was in, uh, excuse me, he was in Oklahoma at the time of the disappearance, and nothing further has indicated he was involved. I don't even think he was questioned. Uh, could be wrong about that, but I couldn't find reports that he was. Now, other theories have focused on Atwood, uh, which was the last known person to see her alive. Some found it suspicious that he did not stay with her until help arrived. Um, like, the, the driver, like, why would you just leave her alone? You know what I mean? to go home and, like, call it in 20 minutes later. Like, that doesn't really make sense to a lot of people. Now, also kind of suspicious, <laughs> him and his wife moved to Florida shortly after the disappearance. Um, perhaps most shockingly, some citizen sleuths have implied that her own father had been abusive towards her, prompting her to run away, which that accusation is strongly denied by her loved ones. And, honestly, I don't really, I don't really see that, you know, but I am nor family nor friends, so I can't really say nothing but speculation. Now, for all the other theories, you know, that we're not going to sit here and cover, because there's a lot, um, we're no closer to finding out what happened to Mara Murray today than we were two decades ago. Um, it still remains open. It's a mystery, big big mystery and the only reason why this case blew up back in that time was it was like one of the first disappearances that was like broadcast on the internet kind of thing 
um, from what other reports had said. So, like, it bothered the whole town for, like, decades. So, you know, considering her slim chances of survival, though, with the weather and, like, the elements at that time, there have been multiple efforts to recover her remains near the scene of the accident, but they found nothing. So, if she did pass near the scene, uh, either they have accidentally skipped over an area or maybe haven't went that far yet. I mean, I don't know how much woods is near Route 112. Like, it could be acres and acres and acres, and that would take decades. That would take years to find, you know what I mean, if she was out there somewhere. But unfortunately, to this day, we have no more information. She's just vanished. Also, big thanks to Wikipedia and allthingsthatarestrange.com and some other documentaries on YouTube and Hulu, etc., etc., for all of the case information that we got today. Um, also, if you go on YouTube and look up Very Local Mara Murray, um, there is a short documentary about her disappearance that you guys can watch if you want to see her sister, her dad, the family, the friends speak about her, um, investigators, news reporters, like, it was very interesting. I watched it while I had lunch before I started recording. Um, very, very interesting, and you should go check that out. Also, um, there is a website called moramurraymissing.org that you guys can go look at. Um, it tells you about campaigns, how to contact people, media, everything and anything that we possibly know about Mara. Um, her sister has a, um, TikTok account, which is at Missing. And you guys can go on there, and this and her sister actually speaks about Mara and her life and missing and all the information and all that kind of stuff. So, I think that's really cool. Her friends and family are still going strong trying to find her and really putting in efforts to, to just find out the truth. Like, what in the world happened to Mara Murray? And that's all for today's episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed the case. Um, unfortunately, like I said, we have no new information about Mara. But I honestly hope that one day her family gets the answers that they deserve and need. And just, you know, they stay strong. Because that's, it's a tough one when your loved ones go missing or they end up a victim of a, of a crime, like, it's very, very hard, you know, so, tune in, um, we're gonna go back to our normal schedule of bi-weekly on Mondays, so, see you guys in two weeks, um, we may or may not do a Weird Crime Monday, I'm not really sure, I'm gonna try to get a desktop so that, I mean, it's a little bit easier, because I get to actually have my podcast mic, and it sounds a little better, but as far as money goes, we'll just have to see for that because I'm not really sure at the moment because the one that I'm looking at is almost a grand. So, eh, it's just kind of, you know, not really a priority right now, but it is, but it's not. So, we'll just have to see. But you guys go check out the website. 
watch some documentaries if you're interested. Um, it's a very, very unusual missing persons case. So, um, if you're interested, you can find all that online. And I hope you guys have a good night and a great weekend. And I'll see you, talk to you in two weeks. Well, guys, that's all for today's episode. Make sure you tune in bi-weekly. We are every other Monday for another riveting case where I will traumatize you more than you probably already are. <laughs> so thank you for listening. Uh, don't forget to check out the Instagram at morbid period curiosity period TC podcast for photos related to each case that I cover. Feel free to send me spooky, crazy stories or case suggestions at morbidcuriositytcpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate the podcast on Spotify and Apple Pod or whatever you're listening to us on. Um, I do appreciate all you spooky listeners. Please stay kind, stay spooky, and for the love of God, don't murder anyone. <laughs>